Amen. Well, I don't know if you have seen the most recent Godzilla movie, Godzilla versus Kong. It really is quite good. The CGI is fantastic. The ultimate battle scene is just what you would hope it would be. If you're worried about plot and characterizations, you're watching the wrong film. There is this one scene that I have trouble with in the film. It seems that it's the same scene repeated in every King Kong movie. In fact, I wanted to scream to the characters in the film, haven't you watched the other films? They chain Kong up. As soon as you see Kong in chains, you know what's going to happen. It's just a matter of time. He will break free. Well, this morning, we happen to have a story, a real-life story of a woman who breaks free, who breaks free of all constraints, who becomes unconstrained in her devotion in response to the good news of Jesus Christ. Last week, we began a sermon series which we're calling Gospel Devotion. We're looking at these five different pictures that are, are, are beautiful and inspiring in the Gospels, in the New Testament. They're beautiful and inspiring for a kind of devotion and response to the good news of who Jesus Christ is. And so today we'll talk about unconstrained devotion, which simply is no-holds-barred love loyalty, and enthusiasm in response to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Unconstrained devotion, no holds barred love, loyalty, and enthusiasm in response to the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. So our text is going to be Luke chapter 7 verses 36 through 50. It's a longer text. Um, if you would have your Bibles with you, would encourage you to follow along and to keep your text open so we can revisit it as well. We'll also provide it on the screen. Let us receive the Word of God this morning. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. 
When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. May God bless the reading of his word. And may God bless our time together as well. It's an incredible story. It's rich on so many levels. It's rich with historical context. It's rich with proclamation and revelation. It's rich in its beauty. It's it's rich even in its form. We may not notice it on the first reading through, but even the way that Luke tells this story, he provides an introduction. He describes the actions of the woman. There's a conversation between Jesus and Simon And then there's the the parable. The parable is the center point of the story. After the parable, we reverse the, the whole story. There's a new conversation between Simon and Jesus. There's a new telling of the actions of the woman. And then there's a conclusion. So the whole story is built around the parable. You know, when we look at this story, we can find that it is very similar in its teaching and maybe even its characters to the story of the prodigal son. In this story, though, we're first introduced to the Pharisee. We learn later that his name is Simon. And and you, you may already know about Pharisees. They came about some 200 years before the time of our story. They Uh, The name Pharisee means holy ones or separated ones. It was a a group of religious leaders, not politicians, but religious leaders that had the ear of the people. In the time of Jesus, about one in 100 Jews were Pharisees, and and they were so against Hellenism, the the Greekifying, the world uh, redefining of Judaism. And so they, they focused on the Torah, and they, they called the Hebrews, they called the Jews to be able to focus on what God would have for them, to be identified as God's children. 
we know that the Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. Then we're introduced to Jesus. It turns out that Jesus is an invited guest to this banquet. There's a uh, New Testament scholar by the name of Kenneth Bailey, and in some of his work on this text, he, he suggests that Jesus is already known to both his host and to the woman. Clearly, we find evidence for that in our text, that Jesus must have given some kind of a sermon or a teaching. Maybe he had worked miracles or, or some kind of act of compassion in their midst. But because of that, Simon responds by inviting Jesus into his house for a banquet. And because of Jesus, the woman also chooses to go. That's who we meet next, is the woman of the city. We're told that she is a sinner. Now, historically, people that have looked at this passage have concluded she must have been a prostitute. Um, Jim Edwards, in his more recent commentary, says, you know, it doesn't say anywhere in the text that that is her sin. Uh, we just know that she is a sinner. It doesn't say she's not a prostitute, but, but we just know that she is a sinner. In fact, everybody knows that she's a sinner. Even Jesus says her sins are many. She is an uninvited guest, but not an unwelcomed guest. We've discussed it before that when they would have banquets, when, when somebody prominent in the community would have a banquet, they would leave the door open to the courtyard and other people could come in and observe the meal. There would be the invited guests who would gather around the table and then beyond them would be these people that would come and, and it was their version of Netflix. They would come and binge watch the conversation. She was not invited she was an uninvited guest, but she wasn't an unwelcomed guest. We do know this, though, that she was an intentional guest. She learned that Jesus was, was there, that she, he was going to be there, and, and she intentionally showed up to be present where he was. And so we have our host, Jesus. We, we have our host, we have Jesus. We have the other invited guests, or would have been some servants, and then we have the others standing around the edge. At some point, Jesus enters the house. When there was a formal banquet being provided, the host would welcome the guests at the door. It was customary that a kiss would be offered. If the host sensed that the guest was of superior rank in society, the kiss would be on the head, the cheek. That There would be a kiss that would be offered. I'm sorry, that's just the reverse. That if it's a peer, it would be on the cheek or on the head. If it was a superior rank, it would be on the hands. We also know that if a person was coming to a banquet, you would offer water. The host wouldn't wash the feet. Maybe a servant would, but at the very least, you would offer water. And that there would be some kind of an anointing, anointing with oil, much like just our olive oil, an anointing on the head with olive oil. We know that none of that occurred. We know of this kind of a thing, even our own culture, Right? If you throw a party, you greet people at the door, you, you say things like, may I take your coat? And you take them away and put them somewhere. You invite them, would you like to sit here or can I get you something to drink? None of these pleasantries, none of these welcome, um, uh, uh, hospitable things were offered to Jesus. And then Jesus takes his place. He, he lies down at the table. He, he reclines, so he's leaning on his left arm. It makes his right hand free to eat. 
and his feet are pointed away from the table toward the outside of the courtyard. Which means that this woman who's standing among the uninvited guests is closest to his feet. And in our story, we find that she's weeping. We're not explicitly told why she's weeping. Maybe she's simply overwhelmed being in Jesus' uh, presence. Maybe there was something in that teaching of Jesus did teach something and she was so struck by it that she continues to weep from the experience of the love that she, ex- that she had received there. Maybe she already knew in her heart that she was forgiven. It could be also because we know that she was there uh, for that whole time that even Jesus said, from the time that I have entered, she hasn't stopped kissing my feet, that she observed the kind of greeting that this Jesus received at the door in the absence of hospitality. Whatever her, her reasons, she weeps. And she chooses to use those tears to wash his feet. She wept upon his feet, and then she dried them with her hair. And there's some discussion as to, you know, is, does this have uh, certain provocative overtones? Or in the, in the story, Jesus gives no indication of that. Just that there's this intimacy of this woman crying on his feet and drying them with her hair. And then she takes this alabaster jar of ointment. Ointment would have been olive oil, but you take some aromatic fragrance and, and, or some spices and, and you would put it in there. And this alabaster jar would have been an expensive thing. Kenneth Bailey and his work and others along that same stream uh, comment that this would have been something a, a woman would have worn around her neck. In our story, though, it doesn't seem to be a happenstance, not something she just wears. So maybe Jim Edwards might be closer in his reflection on this, that this could even be an inheritance that she had, this expensive marble jar, this expensive stone jar that has this aromatic ointment in it. And she anoints his feet. She didn't dare go toward his head. She anoints his feet. And so the Pharisee, Simon, says to himself, in, in the Greek, they, they take the word this, and they put it at the front of the sentence. And so it's in our term, we would go, if this, the way that the Pharisee is speaking, he holds Jesus in contempt. And there's a way of doing a conditional uh, uh, a statement uh, in this language that shows that they don't believe the condition to be true at all. So we might read it like this, if this man were a prophet, which he's not, he would have known, which he doesn't, who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. Jesus, being the prophet, knows what the man is thinking. And he turns to him and he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Evidently, this is a phrase that, that would have informed the recipient that, that they're about to be critiqued. Simon, I have something to say to you. Say it, teacher. Interesting. He calls him teacher, rabbi, which then even underscores even more the kind of non-greeting that Jesus received. At the same time, it holds a little hope. Maybe, maybe Simon might be open to what he says. And so Jesus tells him the, poor, the, the parable. There was a money lender 
And there were two people who had borrowed from him, one who owed him 500 denarii, 500 days worth of work. The other one owed him 50 denarii, 50 days worth of work. And neither one of them could pay. And the moneylender chose to forgive both of them. And, and so Jesus asked Simon, which one of them do you think would love the moneylender more? And Simon, possibly feeling a little trapped, he knows what the answer needs to be. But he throws in the, I suppose. Maybe there's this giant eye roll that takes place at the same time. The one, I suppose, whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus says, you have judged rightly. Then something occurs in the passage. It sets up the next dialogue, and maybe we go by it far too quickly, and we don't even notice the, the physical movement that takes place. Jesus turns toward the woman and speaks to Simon. You know, he could have turned toward Simon, and with a finger in Simon's chest could have told Simon off, but he doesn't do that. He turns toward the woman. And you, so we can even imagine the kind of tonal quality in his voice. He says, I entered this house, you gave me no water. But she has wet my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she hasn't ceased kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet, the lowest part of me, with expensive ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And there's this line in the ESV, um, it's, it reads, for she loved much. It can be confusing looking at that word, for she loved much. It can, in our, our culture, we might go, in our language, in our, our grammar, we might go, well, is it the love that allowed her to be forgiven? The word there in the Greek is actually a word that can also be translated as therefore. And so in the NRSV, and I think the New Living Translation, or maybe a couple others, they actually put that meaning in so that we capture it, Therefore. So, if we were to read it, therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, there, uh, therefore she loved much. That the forgiveness comes first and the love follows it. Even the next line is, is, affirms this understanding. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And then we reach the conclusion. And we have this recasting of the people we've been introduced to. It says, and those who were at table with him said to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? We're reintroduced to Jesus. He's not just the invited guest. He's the one who forgives sins. And then we're reintroduced to the woman. Jesus says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This woman who was introduced as a woman of the city, a sinner, is now introduced as the one who is saved through faith. The one who goes forward, not in condemnation, not in judgment, but goes forth in peace. And so as we think about this wonderful 
beautiful, inspiring story of unconstrained devotion, I think there might be a few observations we can make in the time we have remaining. The first is this. Unconstrained devotion as response to scandalous grace. We saw the grace in the story itself. We know it's scandalous. The people in the story, the other invited guests, were scandalized by it. It it was upsetting. What is happening in this room? If there indeed was a sermon beforehand uh, or a healing or some kind of act of ministry, something that prompted the woman to want to to go and be with Jesus, that that prompted even Simon to invite him, even that is an act of grace. We know that Jesus, even as he turns toward the woman in the midst of this experience and has these words of affirmation, what a wonderful act of grace. But the biggest grace of all, the most scandalous grace, is that her sins had been forgiven. Her sins. A woman of the city, a sinner, her sins. Simon, you may be the Pharisee, but she has received the grace of God. And her faith has made, has saved her. It's remarkable. It's scandalous. And, it, and the wonderful thing is that this is the same grace that Jesus offers us even today. You know, we might say, well, you know, I've never really had a big conversion experience. Or, or maybe I'm not that bad of a person. Or I'm pretty good. And so maybe I don't need to have a really deep understanding of my own forgiveness. I think that the Apostle Paul can be helpful here. The Apostle Paul, in his own reflection, here's how he described himself in 1 Timothy 1.15. He says to Timothy, he goes, the saying is trustworthy and true. It, the saying is, uh, is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of, who, of whom I am the foremost. The Apostle Paul saying, Jesus came to save sinners and I'm the worst of them. And I can say that too. You see, it's not an issue about this distorted scale of of looking around, well, I'm kind of good compared to most people. The scale is so distorted. We might be able to peg ourselves against one another. I'm good in this area. You might be good in that area. But the scale is so different when we look to God. God's purity is off the scale. And we come into this world people who are already defined by sin. And so the remarkable, scandalous grace is that God would forgive us at all. You know, we might have other footings for our faith. Some of us might rely on rational thinking. Some of us might rely upon the fact that we've inherited our faith from our family Maybe we, we look to Christianity and we like the benefits. We like the promise of heaven or we like programs and fellowship. But none of those, or even all of them added together, can have the kind of response that can release us from chains of just moderate devotion and turn us into these unconstrained devotees of Jesus. Nothing can compare like the grace that is ours in and through Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins. Scandalous. The second thing is this, unconstrained devotion manifesting 
in shameless humiliation. Humiliation. Interesting word. Humiliation, and you can look up definitions for yourself, but it involves the surrendering of pride. Humiliation is a path to lowliness and humility. Now, to be humiliated, to have it forced upon us by someone else, is a horrific thing. It's, it feels so punitive and destructive. And it's something that other people can inflict upon us. And it comes then with shame and embarrassment. But there's a whole different thing altogether when we willingly pursue humiliation. The woman standing at the edge of this, uh, this banquet, going toward the feet of Jesus, and, and bowing down to, to wash his feet with her tears and dry them with her hair. She has no shame in this moment. She willingly chooses this act. We might say, well, she's already a servant. She's already somebody pushed aside. How far does she really have to stoop? But when we realize that we're all in the same condition as she is, and we're standing next to, in front of, with this divine being, we find that being his servant, his slave, is the best place of all. And so, because we are unconstrained, since we have been freed to be devoted, we can love when others hate. Picture yourself at work. Picture yourself with teammates or at home in a conversation. Maybe it's a tense conversation. If we're free, we can love when others hate. We can forgive when others seek re revenge. We can bless when others curse. We can encourage when others ridicule. We can pursue justice when others seek their own power. We can be patient when others are hurried. Because we are freed, we can show kindness when others show hostility. And we can do these things not just in moderation, because we have been freed. The chains have come off. Our hearts have been set free. We can go forth and we can follow the pattern of Jesus Christ. He indeed is our example. In Philippians, we're told that he did not consider equality with God a thing to hold on to, but he became a servant. He took the form of a servant in this world. Humiliation, the path of humility. There's no shame in being like Jesus. In being like Jesus, we become our true selves. Third observation, unconstrained devotion focuses on Jesus Christ all the time, everywhere. We have this wonderful picture of the woman standing at Jesus' feet, weeping. Again, maybe she was weeping about the reception that Jesus had received. Maybe she was weeping because of the grace she had already experienced inside of her and she knew that she was free. Maybe there was something about compassion, the, the way he had looked at her in the midst of a crowd. Who We don't know. She just wept. 
She focused on Jesus and bent at his feet. Now, others in the room, maybe they were focusing on the power dynamics. Maybe they were, they were focusing on the drama that was unfolding. Maybe they're focusing on being right. We're going to catch this would-be rabbi. We're going to prove him that he's wrong because we know we're already right. Maybe they were simply focused on the food or on themselves. She, however, focused on Jesus. We know this is our encouragement. Paul in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, he says, in whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of Jesus Christ. Let your whole life, every word, every action, be in His name. And when Jesus makes that teaching, when He tells His followers, He goes, I am the, the way, the truth, and the life. You know, we might get excited about learning all about the way, and we get all excited about learning about the truth, and we get all excited about learning about the life. We have to remember that, that Jesus is the way. So the way is Jesus. The truth is Jesus. The life is Jesus. So no matter what room we're in, no matter what group of people we happen to be with at any given time, no matter what the situation is, there's the opportunity as people impacted by the grace of Jesus Christ to focus on Jesus in that moment. It's way more than simply asking the question, what would Jesus do? We, we would ask more questions. Just, what is Jesus up to? How does Jesus feel about this? How can I depend on Jesus? How has Jesus blessed me to be a blessing now? We can focus on Jesus as we see the one who is hurting and responding to that need with love and tenderness and sensitivity of sharing friendship and connecting and serving. And so we can ask, where is Jesus in this room? Where is Jesus in this conversation? Are you ready to bust free? Listen, our sister in Christ, the woman of, uh, of a city, the sinner, she absolutely busted free. She busted free with, with this this love and this loyalty, this, this enthusiasm in response to the good news of Jesus Christ and her forgiveness. And so we too, like King Kong, can break those chains. We don't have to be pegged down by cultural expectations, by old habits, through the power of God's grace. We can willingly choose the path of humiliation, of lowliness, of service, and we can focus on Jesus Christ everywhere, all the time. Let's pray together. Father, we give you praise and we thank you for the story of this woman, this amazing, beautiful, inspiring story of a life changed and, and a path taken. And we thank you for the forgiveness that you offer us through faith in Jesus Christ. God, you know how much each one of us has settled for other things, have tethered ourselves to other priorities, have allowed ourselves to be constrained by other people's expectations 
or, or by a, a halfway faith. God, would you free us even today? Through your Spirit, would you convict us and set us free that we would be unconstrained in our devotion to you? We give you praise. And we pray all this in Christ's name. To him be the glory. Amen.